Hello, and welcome to Stacia Adjacent, a podcast at the intersection of analog and digital productivity. I'm Justin Twyford, and joined as always by my friend and co-host, Stu Lennon. Good morning, Stu. How are you today? Good afternoon, Justin, as it is for me. I'm, I'm very, very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty good today, actually. It's it's a good day. My my office is finally all set up, I hope, the way that I want it. So been a very productive week. Excellent. Good work out of you. Mm-hmm. I threw money at it. You know that problem that we have? Throw money at it, it goes away. Uh-huh. Ah, I tell you, that's a good thing to be privileged. A little bit of follow-up. I got a lovely email that scared the heck out of me from Arthur in Calgary. Uh, Calgary is here in Canada, and he's the next province over from me who gets winters perhaps a little worse than I'm expecting here, but uh, in in that vein, he was warning me that not only do I need a snowblower, but I may also need to look into a block heater for my car. Do you have any idea what a block heater is in Cyprus there, Stu? Not the faintest notion. Well, apparently, cars in Canada, and I, I've never actually seen one of these personally, but they come with wires hanging out of their engine blocks that you can plug in to your home. And I guess this wire warms up your engine and keeps it from freezing so that when you try to start your truck or your car in whatever case you you have, uh, your engine doesn't blow up. It doesn't freeze and go yucky. And I've never used one of these. I do believe the Hemi in my truck has a wire tied up to it. But no, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold, hold the phones there. The what in your truck? A Hemi. I have a 5.7 liter engine, Stu. Excellent. That still doesn't really help me with what a Hemi might be. A Hemi is a hemispherical um, combustion chamber, which is part of the design out of the Chrysler line. It gives more horsepower for the engine. So I have a biggish truck and I have a biggish engine in there. Which, uh, for those European listeners, means that you do not want to put gas in my truck, or petrol in my truck, as you guys would call it, because um, it's a little on the expensive side. It's about as gas-efficient as a brick. But uh, it it is fun. It is a lot of horsepower. Uh, it has a lot of pickup when I need it. And that's something that, in a new house, I've needed that truck a whole lot more than I thought I was going to. And of course, you've got a Hemi, uh, which I shall, I shall never leave home without now. <laughs> I just, I'm a car guy. So, you know, Hemis are, they just explain what that is. It's, it's a big V8. Anyway, I, I think I have a wire on it that I can plug it into things, but um, never tried it. So, hey, I learned something new. I might have to look into that. Well, there you go. And I've got to see where, where the plugs are around the house. The other thing Arthur told me, don't leave Coke in the car. Apparently, Coke blows up when it gets frozen, which I A, I didn't know, and B, I have a teenage daughter, so I'm really worried about that because who knows what gets left in the back of my truck. And for the benefit of the Serious Organized Crime Administration, who are probably listening to this podcast, we're referring to Coca-Cola, the beverage. Please carry on, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. It's not the 80s. I don't even remember that stuff, Stu. <laughs> It's just the concept of it blowing up that's rather frightening. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. 
Anyway, uh, thank you for your for your feedback and uh, for scaring the heck out of me, uh, Arthur, because I had not thought about just how cold it's really going to get. So I'm I'm a little nervous now. Well, in fairness, this is this is good time to get this intel rather than sort of my car doesn't work and something blew up in the trunk. It's nice to know before any of those things happen. It, it's only it can only be your fault from now on, Justin. You've been warned. I have been warned. You know, if you if you do plan to move anywhere, probably a good idea to research before you move. I'm just saying. Well, you know, details, details, Justin. Hmm. What's your tool of the week, Stu? Uh, so I've got two this week. Um, well, I suppose three if you really push it. Um, I I logged on to Max Barkey. He had a sale recently, didn't he, where he was... Mm-hmm. His new DevonThink course. Yeah, well, he was about to put his prices up. And so I, I did a little bit of sort of housekeeping because I knew that I wanted to buy one or two of them, which I did um, around photos and... Mm. Um, I think Hazel I already had, but I bought one other. I can't remember which. Because my photos were are um a mess. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, the, the man who will fix this, probably in more detail than one could ever reasonably expect, would be Max Barkey. And I was right. Um, and in his course, he recommends an app called Power Photos, which is really, really good for if you want to manage multiple libraries. Mm. And I decided that the place my photos were going to live were going to be um, in the Apple sort of world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I pulled photos from everywhere and put them into sort of, you know, time-based albums that all coexist on my Mac and then therefore kept sort of backed up everywhere. And, and just this week, I sort of dug into all those old archive drives that you have hanging around in your Mac. I'm sure you've got them too. <laughs> I moved a box of them from the old place. And I was like, I, I've really got to go in and purge these. And I looked at it and I just ran out of time. So I have this, you know, a, a file box full of the old Western digital backup drives that I have no idea what's on them anymore. Well, I, I went through a load of those a load of sort of more modern uh, drives and also just sort of junk directories that have migrated from Mac to Mac over the last how many years and just started working through them and going, I wonder what's in here. Um, I left, um, it would have been cool. It would have been called G Suite at the time, probably. The, the Google world mm-hmm. was running pocket notebooks as was. And also I had a personal account there. And I used their export facility, which is designed to be as awkward and difficult as possible and brings you down this enormous amount of files. And all my photos had been backed up to Google. So I was in that lovely position of not knowing what photos were where. Do I have copies of these? Do I not? These are my wedding ones. Shall I just delete them? Maybe be a little bit careful about that. So using Power Photos, I went through all of that and got my photos sorted. So that was a huge win for me. Uh, and then I was on a roll. So I started doing the same thing with, with files. Devon think, I don't know if you've got it yourself into Devon think, be careful. Um, I haven't. Well, as a, uh, okay, a slight tangent, perhaps Devon think on the surface looks like a sort of souped up finder. Mm-hmm. And in many ways it is, except when it isn't. 
So um, as I started going through the course, I got a bit excited and I started throwing everything into Devon Think. And then I tried to open a file that had migrated to Devon Think. And I tried to open it and I don't know what it was, Word or something. And Word went, well, I can't go there. It's a database. I've got no idea what to do with that. Mm. Oh, so I have to export the file. And, oh, Ooh. oh no, and no, mm, no, this isn't what I thought it was at all. Uh, so I sort of backed away from that. But what DevonThink does do is it makes a great database of research, uh, sort of proper archive stuff, not not stuff that you're going to want to access with an app. Mm-hmm. And that helped me go through those drives, and I've been I've been having those conversations with myself. Where I've, you know, I've looked at a directory of the, the business that we spoke about uh, last week that, that I sold. Mm-hmm. I sold it in 2005. So that was, well, no, 2005, no, it didn't, 2015. So that's six years, 2014, 2014, 2015, 2015. So that's um, six years ago now, which means all of the data that I hold there, A, doesn't belong to me because I sold the business, and B, not even the tax guys can come looking for it anymore. So <laughs> that's really the answer, isn't it? As long as the tax guys can't come, it yeah. doesn't matter. Well, you, you know, and there's all sorts in there. You know, there's sort of you know records of conversations with employees, just everything that you just store as you're as you're doing your job, and and just a huge amount of it living on. Um, you know, those old sort of archive drives, and also drives that were hanging around on my Mac. Um, and I said, mm, Do I want them? Do I not want them? Should I keep them? Um, because, you know, I don't know about you, but I had email going back to 2006. Mm. Um, I used a thing called Mail Steward, and I've got these enormous databases of mail, much of which is the same as everybody else's mail. Should we go there? Yes. <laughs> you know, did, was that worth keeping for 15 years? So doing a lot of tidying up and sort of... Um, just feeling a little bit more in control, I think. Um, very satisfying, but also quite time-consuming. Mm-hmm, I can imagine. What about you? What's your tool of the week? There are two, two tools that I want to talk about. One of them is a problem that I had. So as I may have lamented before on, on this very podcast, the new silly expensive monitor from Apple does not have speakers and does not come with a webcam. Now, the webcam thing, I don't really have a problem with because, you know, even their latest and greatest, newest and best laptops have just upgraded to a 1080p uh, webcam. So buying the 4K Logitech uh, did not seem to be such a bad thing. The speakers have proved to be much more challenging. So, I have in front of me on my desk, a pair of HomePod minis, you know, the new fast ones that come in different colors. Now they're, they're new product. They're not the discontinued big boys that uh, I have because they just don't fit. They look too big on my desk, but just a little set. And I figured, you know what? Big Sur did a upgrade to airplay where you can now airplay to a stereo pair because for the longest time you couldn't. So I figured I would just put these on there and I would airplay from my computer to those. And there you go. Problem solved. Well, I could do that. The problem is that there is about a one second delay in the audio. So imagine you're having something like a Zoom call 
and you see somebody talking and about a second later, you hear the voice coming through the speakers. It is so off-putting. It's, it's like watching one of those seventies, poorly dubbed foreign films. Mm-hmm. Nobody makes any sense. And it's, it's just, you can't focus on anything because you're just so distracted by it. So this week I threw money at the problem and I bought myself a new set of speakers. Well, an old set of speakers, actually. I, I bought some updated bigger boys for my studio and brought my studio speakers in here. So I did buy a set of speakers, but they're not the ones in here. I picked up a Focusrite 2i2 uh, Scarlett um, audio interface. So now I have an audio interface for my microphone coming in, and I have an audio interface for my speakers going out. And then I bought myself some Ultimate Design floor speakers because these speakers that I have, they're KRK Rocket 5s, which are a very good music speaker. They were in my studio for the longest time. So I'm very familiar with how they sound and what their profile is, their sound profile. But they weigh sort of about 13, 15 pounds a piece. I don't really want those on top of the heavy monitor that I have trying to overwork my poor little fully desk uh, motors going up and down because I figured that'll die pretty quickly. Uh, So I have these behind my desk uh, out of the way. They're floor standing, so they're out of the way of the desk going up and down. And they sound just actually fantastic. They're really, really lovely sounding. I have audio that matches the lips so I can now watch videos and not have that awkward delay. And I could do voice conferencing and all that good stuff. So I, I'm pretty happy with that. That was my my big spend. I threw a lot of money at that whole setup. Cool. And then just because it's me, I got frustrated of the typing in my password on, you know, the, one of the biggest problems. And I'm sure you're familiar with this one, Stu, because you use stuff that's hidden away in drawers. I've gone from using a laptop as sort of my primary keyboard input to uh, using a, uh, a separate key keyboard. I have the the old Magic Keyboard that's the wide one with the number pads on it. But having to reach across, especially now because I've got two laptops sitting here, and I'm, the Touch ID is not particularly accessible. I realized that Apple came out with the new Touch ID Magic Keyboard for the M1s, which is where I do most of my day-to-day work. And so I invested in one of those. And of course, when you're doing that, I had to invest in a new Magic uh, trackpad to go with it. And I was thinking about you when I opened it because the new ones are actually white. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes. And I know you let, you're, you're always into a good piece of white kit. Uh, well, I, I'm I'm always into to matching kit. You know, I I I always think if you're going to have thousands of dollars worth of stuff on your desk, it should kind of match. Which is why, I mean, we can get onto MagSafe connectors in a while if you like. <laughs> but yeah, the um, I have to say, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big mechanical keyboard guy. I've got some some lovely ones. I've got a Keychron. I've got the UHK. I've got some really good mechanical keyboards. And then Apple brought out the magic one with touch ID. So my, my daily, daily driver is a Mac mini, uh, with an M one. Uh, so yeah, I bought the magic keyboard as well. The one without 
the number of pad this time. So I've got, last time I checked, I think I've got three magic keyboards, maybe no, four magic keyboards, two, two with number pads and two without, but only one has the, the touch ID. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, so I didn't know you're a magic keyboard or a mechanical keyboard kind of guy. So, um, thank goodness. Um, I, I don't have to edit your mechanical keyboards. <laughs> well, there was a period where, uh, Harry Marks, friend of the show, go and check out the homework podcast. He, he was, he had an app that sort of took away the sound of the keyboard, <laughs> except it didn't always work. Mm. And I'm not sure <laughs> some of the times he didn't realize it hadn't worked. So that, so it would come out and be like in the background. And I was like, oh, wow. If I sent, if I sent a file like that to Justin, that there would be twitches that I would be able to feel across the Atlantic ocean. <laughs> uh, probably. Yes. Hey, uh, you know, we were talking about, uh, I've got completely off topic here, but we were talking a little bit last week, uh, about the new Apple laptops. Mm. I did a time comparison. Okay. I ran the processing of surprisingly one of Stu's files, um, but we won't go there in my denoising program between the M1 Mac and my old Intel Mac. The Intel Mac was about 24% faster in terms of processing. Now, granted, the software I use has just come up finally with Rosetta support, but I was surprised at how much slower it was on the M1 because I was always figuring the M1 to be much quicker. So it really does depend on your application. Mm -hmm. uh, I was reading an article from Six Colors. Jason Snell uses the same software that I do, and he was given a pro max big boy as a review unit by apple and he ran the same test and between his imac pro which i'm assuming is somewhat similar to my macbook pro maybe a little faster but that and the new max uh, the new pro max he actually didn't have any increases in time on the new ones so i think i might have saved me some money at least there until I was talking to my friend, uh, Jason DeFilippo, who's another podcast guy, Grumpy Old Geeks, in case you've never uh, heard that show. Um, he pointed out to me that uh, Isotope is working on native a Apple Silicon support, and that'll be sort of the end of Q4 2021 and early 2022 for the rest of the programs, uh, which may just change my mind yet again. But for now least you know my my shopping cart and my apple account has a six thousand dollar laptop sitting there specked out the way i'd like it and i looked at it and said not right now which is good i can i can avoid that and that difficult conversation with the wife when she says what was that just got delivered <laughs> yeah for sure i mean listening to uh the the techerati and, and reading the techerati um as, as ever, I think David Sparks was was one of the most um, straightforward reviews. Where if I had an all singing, all dancing, sixteen inch um, MacBook Pro delivered, uh, which is tempting because I like new shiny things, mm -hmm. and opened it next to my bottom of the line Mac MacBook Air, mm -hmm. there would be no appreciable difference 
and the tasks that I do. So <laughs> websites would work as fast, email would work as fast, because I don't do any of those pro type things, editing audio or video even. Um, all of the, the, the great benefits of those chips really wouldn't make much difference to my life. The, the thing that, that I, I believe the more I listen to the thing that I am missing is a bit of memory. Yeah. Um, so the, both my Mac mini and my MacBook air report to me, oh, you're running out of memory quite frequently. Yeah. I was lucky. I did upgrade to the 16. Uh, gigabyte version when it came out they had that in stock at my local apple store mm -hmm. in those days where i had a local apple store that wasn't a four and a half hour drive <laughs> yeah i went on day one and picked that up and i was very very lucky they had a uh, spec bumped version of the macbook pro that has i think that's you know part of the reason that i'm not terribly excited about spending that chunk of cash right now as well the macbook pro that i have meets all the needs that's the the production machine is the one that could use the, the speed bump, the day-to-day -day machine. It, it's fine for what I do at work, you know, spreadsheets, email, Word documents, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, it's fine. For sure. Um, but again, as David Sparks gives with one hand, he takes with the other. And he just points out that you might actually want to buy it for the display mm. <laughs> because it's really, really pretty. And... Uh, you know, I've, I've written about, and I know you've, you've mentioned it, that there are some things where Apple is kind of not quite there yet in terms of its, its cameras and, you know, the, the sort of ultimate machine, the machine that would say, whoosh, I want to buy you for me, Apple don't make it yet. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of pros are currently going, yeah, they make it now for me because it, I can get, you know, 32 gigs of Ram and or what are they now called RAM? And, you know, there's amazing chips that mean that I can render video fast while X coding this and uh, that's all fantastic. And I, you know, I love the idea of it, but I don't do any of it. So <laughs> it just wouldn't make any difference. I want something that looks great. It's got an amazing camera. The colors all match. Mm. I, I mean that I'm, <laughs> I'm old enough now to go, actually that stuff is important to me. I don't feel stupid anymore. But the idea that if you bought one of these high powered, super duper pro max MacBook pros in space gray, space gray, <laughs> you'll get a silver MagSafe. <laughs> Just blows your mind, really, doesn't it? The cheapest component in the box. Throw it. I would throw it at Apple. That's it. You want me to give you $5,000 for this thing and you can't be bothered to produce a peripheral in another color because it might save you 18 cents. <laughs> That's what happens when you put the ops guy in charge. That's why I was never in charge of anything because <laughs> I'm an ops guy too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Joni Ive, it would have definitely matched. Well, in fairness, um, I have to say, if you look at the current iMac, Mm -hmm. the people who thought about that and that is the machine for me really I, I probably don't want to admit it but that's probably the machine that i need that's got if you buy a red one you get a red keyboard and you get a red um magic trackpad yeah or magic mouse or you know everything matches they've looked at it so they do know how to do it 
but pros don't want that. Apparently. <laughs> pros want um, a silver MagSafe connector with a space gray lap. Nonsense. Honestly. Now, I got to be honest with you. One of the things that drives me nuts, because having just bought the new keyboard with the Touch ID, and wouldn't it be wonderful to have a choice of keyboards for buying aftermarket? Wouldn't you love like a bright yellow keyboard or, you know, God forbid, the orange? That would just be gorgeous on my desk. It's coming. An orange trackpad, an orange. Yeah. It's coming. It will arrive. You got to buy a computer to get it, though, Stu. You can't just buy it separately, which is... No, you will be able to, I think. I I think the problem there is just, um, you know, that sort of supply chain logistics, I think, is what's causing that. Because they they did that before with the... um, with the space gray peripherals, didn't they? You could only get them with a computer, but then they became available generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they discontinued those. Ah, oh, boy, the things that we have to deal with. All right, Stu, let's get back on our program here. Yes, absolutely. Yes, let's just stop talking about Apple. What are you running with today? Uh, I'm running with a beautiful fountain pen today, um, a Waterman Karen, which is not a pen I would ever have chosen. Waterman had associations with me of sort of um, I think the equivalent now in the US is probably cross. Um, you know, when you graduate high school, somebody will buy you a pen. That doesn't work for all, very well. Yes, I know. Yeah, well, the age I am, it was kind of a Schaefer, a Parker, or a Waterman. Those were the three sort of big names around that. Mm-hmm. This came from the now, the now departed blog, uh, The Pen Habit. Mm-hmm. So Matt Armstrong ran a wonderful YouTube channel called the pen habit and a, and a website to match. Uh, and he's now, he's now moved on. I think he's doing, he's doing all sorts of musical stuff now, I think. Mm. Gardening. Why do I think gardening? Anyway, he was selling this. He sold a couple of pens to me. This, this being one of them. It's in a, it's in a, a wonderful sort of gun metal. It's a very modern feeling pen. Mm. Uh, and it's got a sort of hooded nib or sort of, it's an all in one nib. Um, it's difficult to describe. Get, uh, there'll be a, a link in the show notes. Go have a look. And the link is actually to the review of this specific pen. This is the pen that I then bought from him. Wow. And uh, I filled it with a an Aquamarine by Pelican. And it's lovely. Uh, I think nib size would bother you. This is a medium but it's definitely my side of medium. It's definitely on the broader side. I have a Waterman Curran GT, which is not the fancy, Ooh. lovely one that you have here. It is just a black. Well, I'm going to call it precious resin because, you know, mm. I'm going to do the Mont Blanc thing to it and justify what I paid for it. But it's a black plastic pen. But the styling is very similar. And that is a very, very generous medium. So, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm enjoying it. I've still, I've still got that, um, Twisby is still going. <laughs> I'm probably maybe halfway through the reservoir of that. Uh, and my little Coeco with its, uh, with its cartridge, I'll just go and check the cartridge status now. The Mont Blanc I, I used up. Oh, lovely. Uh, I did, I did tell you that was quite a s- small, uh, yep. I still got half a cartridge in the Coeco as well. I just got to leave it on the driveway for your wife to drive over it a couple more times. <laughs> Yeah, it'll just sort of smile and look back at it and go, is that all you've got? <laughs> what about you? What about you, Justin? What are you writing with? All right, so I, I had two pens this week. I tried something different. 
Have you ever tried sketchnoting? Sketchnotes? No, I've read stuff on it, um, but never tried it. I hadn't either, but I was looking for a different way to be engaged in remote learning. Uh, so one of the joys of being a CPA is that I have a certain amount of uh, professional development activities that I have accomplish each year, mm. which means basically for the rest of the year, because this year has been what has been a year, I have to sign up and, and sit in a bunch of virtual conferences. And I was trying to come up with the best way to capture notes on those. Uh, I've heard about sketchnoting for some time, never really looked into it. But the idea of trying to be engaged, because I find it very easy to get distracted if you're on a virtual, a virtual call where somebody is boring. Uh, let's be honest, if they haven't captured that attention. So I came to this idea of trying sketch notes. And so I bought the book last week. Uh, it's called, I don't have it uh, in front of me, uh, Sketchnoting Handbook or something like that. Mm-hmm. The book is, well, it's a bit like the bullet journal book. It's um, not particularly great. It assumes that you know what you're doing before you get into it. And it just gets into more the, here's how you can do the layout, not how do you really synthesize anything from a, a seminar into something that makes sense in terms of a sketch note. But I did actually have a conference this week. And I sat down and I took, because you don't want to really have a fountain pen, I took a Retro 51 to that and a blank page and just made some notes, sketch notes, not particularly artistic. I don't draw that well, but they were just quick notes. They were different size fonts. There were lines and, you know, thought bubbles and stuff like that. And I just had a lot of fun with it. And it was surprisingly good for keeping me engaged. Long story short, I used a Retro 51, which is the Speakeasy version. Mm -hmm. The Speakeasy Red Wine. So this is a really cute retro. It has a cork on the very back of it. And it's a beautiful red wine color with sort of a brass rather than the, the traditional chrome furniture. Mm -hmm. And the label on it looks like a bottle of wine. And seen as I'm not going out and drinking as much wine as I would like to, I'm in a wine region, we have tastings. But we have been doing that with everything that's going on with my wife. I figured I would sit here and pretend I was drinking wine and do some sketch noting, which was lovely. Mm, sounds like a lovely pen. I also inked up an inexpensive Chinese pen of mine. I may have complained last week about my terrible, terrible nib that I disliked. Mm -hmm. I went back to this one because it has it's a it's an inexpensive plastic pen called the L-I-Y Future. And L-I-Y stands for living in you. I have no idea what that means, but it's just a very, very small little pen. But comes with a German number five Schmidt nib. And I absolutely love the nib on this one. Uh, the one I've got is a white cloud acrylic pen. Uh, and I filled it with the vibrant pink Lamy ink. It's uh, mostly because it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And that's hitting pretty close to home this time. So I wanted to for sure use that. I've been journaling with that every day, uh, just as sort of a private tribute to everything my wife's going through. Mm -hmm. 
And how is that all going this week? Has it been a, been a good week as weeks go? A tough week? A bit of both? It's uh, been a bit of both. When my wife first started treatment, it was great. She was getting treatments on a Monday. And so by the time the weekend came around, she was starting to feel not too bad. Now her treatments have been moved back to a Wednesday. And so the weekends are pretty hard for her. So uh, mm. it's... We're, we're getting less quality time out than we would have liked to, but you know, it's a process. She's, she's holding up like a trooper. She's doing fantastic. And you know, uh, all we could do is be supportive and, uh, buy her nice things. Uh, I was out yesterday buying her a new, uh, coffee table and end table set for the new couches that are coming. Cool. Uh, getting a new home is expensive. <laughs> My wife could spend money like crazy. Of course. Uh, hopefully she doesn't listen to that and hear that, though. No, no, no. Never say that. All right, Stu. We're going to talk about relationships again. Oh, relationships. Relationships. Part two. Uh, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and we said at the end of it, there was still a lot more that we could talk about. And you had talked about some training tool that you used on a task and relationship graph. Now we're going to put a copy of this into the show notes, but maybe you can talk us through how this, how this graph works. It's a standard, uh, this is an MBA graph. You know, uh, if you take an MBA, the only things that you'll learn, there are two things. One, every problem can come down to a two by two graph. And two, the answer to any problem is it depends. And there you go. I've just saved you <laughs> a couple of years of your life and, well, lots and lots of dollars. But this, this graph, a two-by-two two graph, I'll, do you want to tell us a little bit about it, Stu? Oh, right. Okay. So um, hopefully, if, you, if you're a visual person, just look at the show note. This will be much easier. If, you're a, if you like mouth words, then the x-axis is tasks. The y-axis is relationship. So that then gives you, as Justin has given away, a two-by-two two graph. So high relationship, low task, that's called selling. High relationship, high task, that's called participating. Low relationship, low task, that's telling. And low relationship, low, high task, that's called delegating. There you go. There's your two by two grid. And it's really, it's about leadership styles. And it's about how you as a leader deal with a specific issue or situation. So there might be times in business when the task is very important. And in fact, the relationship you don't care so that's when you tell people to do stuff mm. um, that might be as simple as give that customer a refund what you want to do what you're doing as a leader there is, is taking a decision saying let's solve the problem you may afterwards want to then talk about it but there and then speed is of the essence this isn't a negotiation you are the manager you are the boss boom tell someone it may be that things aren't as cut and dried and you as the boss think, okay, 
I believe that actually we should refund this customer because they're an important customer. And I think the refund ultimately will bring us more business and that's good for the business. But I want to take the team with me on this. So there you're concerned about getting the relationship side of things right. So you don't want to tell someone to do this. You want to say, okay, guys, how do we feel we're going to deal with this? And you're, you're pushing for one outcome. You're pushing for the refund, but you present it in such a way as to say, let's agree on this. You're selling the idea. If we take the same example even further, then, then you might think, okay, I want the team to arrive at the right decision. And I'm going to give them their head. I'm going to let them kick this around. And I'm going to be part of the team getting to the decision. And if they decide that actually we're not going to give the refund, so be it. And there you're participating. You're giving the team a lot more responsibility. Or it may not be a team, maybe a person. And then the final example would be, you don't care if they give the customer refund or not. Um, And you think, okay, I'm not sure what's gone on here. I've got other things to do. This isn't the most important thing in my day. So I'm going to say to the team or to the individual, all right, you know the job, you know the business, you know the situation, you decide. And that's just delegating it away. Those are not the best examples. I've just made them up as I was going along. However, the four styles do exist. And what we used to do in training courses is that we would give people um, some questionnaires, uh, simple sort of personality tests, and they would, you know, select A, B, C, D on a series of questions. And you would say to them, right, just give me your instinctive answers, go. Boom. And that would give you an indication of someone's natural leadership style. and Very often it would reflect their current job role. Mm -hmm. So if you had someone who was a team leader, you would find that they were probably more task oriented than perhaps somebody who wasn't a team leader, but also it gave you an insight into their natural style. So always in a large group, you will get cross section of styles. There'll be some people who are very relationship focused. Some people are very task focused. Some people who think that everything is best done by being very relationship oriented and very task oriented. So participating, let's participate about everything. Um, and they think that's the best way to do it. It's wonderful, which it is. It's also the slowest way to do anything. And so if, if time is an issue, then that style of management won't work very well. So once we got everybody's scores back, we would give them the scores. And we would, you know, let them share their scores. And that's always a great laugh because usually the boss is in the room and the boss has scored really high on telling because he's all about the tasks (laughs) and he's all, you know, delegating because he never does any work. He makes me do it instead. You know, there's all sorts of jokes go on and everybody has a good laugh about it all. And generally speaking, people defend their result. So they'll say, oh, well, yes, I'm, I'm a seller sort of guy I am, you know, I'm just, I'm all about helping people get to the right decision because I'm right, but I'm nice. And you'd hear all this stuff and you go on and go on and then you, you stand up and you say, you're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you 
none of none, none of these styles is better than the other. They're all important. This is all about situational leadership. So there are times that you should employ one style and times when you shouldn't. So as I said, if you're looking for something, a quick decision, don't go down the route of participating because wherever you get into relationship oriented, uh, situations, then everybody has to have their say. Um, you have to have room for a bit of conflict, you know, a bit of to and fro, uh, which is fine in the right situation, but the right situation is not when you need a fast decision. So when you need a fast decision, you are either going to tell someone, um, or you are going to delegate. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. That's okay. The trick is knowing how to work out what each situation requires. And the thing that I took from this when I first did it, not as a trainer, but as a trainee, was that actually every relationship that I was in in the workplace benefited from me thinking about which of these styles I was trying to employ. When you're the boss, it's relatively straightforward. Well, it's not relatively straightforward, but it's much easier to think, okay, I'm the boss. Which technique am I going to use? All right, I want Justin to buy into this, so I'm going to sell it to him rather than just tell it to him. However, if Justin's my boss and I want to get him to do something, how do I do that? Telling with the boss, that's a tough sell. That's really difficult to get away with. Selling, yeah, okay. Can I get Justin to buy into the, to my idea? Um, or do I need to get Justin to, to think it was Justin's idea? Do I need to sort of get him to participate, but just subtly guide him to the right place? Or do I just need to say, listen, boss, this, this is way over my head. This is something I can't really deal with or shouldn't have to deal with. <laughs> Yours. Take it away, um, which is sort of upward delegation, which is one of the great skills of work. Okay, if if you're not if you're not at the top of the org chart, learn how to delegate up. Trust me, <laughs> this will save you so much pain. Um, and that's to me always been the key to management. I've always found managing people beneath me, which is a you know the wrong word to use, but below me in the org chart, mm-hmm. quite straightforward. The trick is to manage the people above you. Mm-hmm. That's real management, is getting them to do the right things because almost invariably the people at the coalface have the right answer. It's just getting the people who are not at the coalface who tend to be higher in the org chart because, well, who knows why. It's getting those people to make the right decisions. And that's about using the right technique to lead them to the right solution. Mm-hmm. And so and I've set that up now to say that's the most important thing. And I'm going to say, right, so Justin, how do people do that? Wow, it's, it's, it's difficult. It is not easy using, you know, even taking the time. I'm just sort of thinking back to last week where I was in just get it done mode. It is not a time where you have even the opportunity to reflect how, how is the best way to work in an organization. You're firmly in the telling and delegating part, you know, that's task oriented. That's all you can do. And, and so it really is a challenge. And I was, I was thinking about this. One of the questions that I did have to myself was how much 
organizational relationship behavior comes from the C-suite. How do the leaders in an organization exhibit these relationship building traits that then come down to the rest of the organization? For example, if you're in a an organization where your C-suite is all about the delegating, you know, there that's all they want to do. How do you, as perhaps an intermediate manager, come up with this, this part of, do you just then pass the buck down? I mean, I think we've all seen organizations like that. We've also seen other organizations where relationships play a much bigger part and, and are very participative. But it, it's very interesting to look at how not just the act itself of, of making a decision and involving people, but that, that, corporate, that corporate culture does affect how behavior uh, happens, how relationships are developed in an organization. What, what's your thoughts and your experience on seeing that, Stu? Well, corporate culture is, um, I, I suppose, one of the great challenges of, of, of the modern day, particularly now in the, sort of the pandemic times. So how do you communicate a culture when, when people aren't getting together so much, or if at all? Mm. And um, I, I'll give an example from, from the sort of the contract jobby job thing that I'm doing at the moment, which is very unfair to them, but hey, there you go. The, the financial year is finished. It was for the company a fantastic year. I don't think that's confidential information. Uh, it's the best year they've ever had. And that's despite the pandemic. So, you know, huge props to the, to the leadership team. They've done some great stuff. And to, to my colleagues who've been sort of driving all that growth, fantastic work out of them. And they, um, in the UK, the current, as we record, the current situation is that pretty much all COVID restrictions have gone. Um, it's, it's life as normal, um, with the exception that, you know, the, the case numbers are quite high, the, the death numbers are quite high. So it's a little bit scary, but ostensibly now people can sort of get on with what they want to do. So the business has said, look, it would be great to get together and to, to celebrate this year and also to sort of outline what we see for, for this year coming. So, you know, if you're available um, and can get to HQ, please come in. We're going we're gonna to hire extra space so that, you know, we're not all sort of sitting on top of each other. And, it, you know, it's, it's trying to do things the right way. And if you're not able to, or you live in a foreign country, then you can, you can come in uh, online. Okay, well, that's great. That's fantastic. And when are we doing this? We're doing this at 1,800 hours on Friday. Mm. Say what now? You, <laughs> which for me would be 20 hundred hours. Uh -huh. That's, that is what you might call a hard sell <laughs> to the current Mrs. Lennon. Listen, I'm going to spend the evening looking at my computer in a sort of virtual celebration of the company's year. She'll just go, are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so. I'm looking at what the business is doing there and I'm thinking, okay, first of all, the business is spending money to make this happen. 
So it's having to hire extra space. It's bringing in, this is very posh, it's bringing in canapé, probably volavant, I would suggest. Uh, they're going to be drinks, um, all funded by the company. And, you know, I dare say there might be some nice surprises and things because I, I, I know the C-suite and, the, and they're all lovely people. And I'm thinking you're spending money here, but somehow you've sort of made this carrot into a bit of a stick because there are some people who are very nervous about going into to the office and they go, well, I'm not going. There are other people that are going, this is going to come as a shock to you business, but I have stuff to do on a Friday evening because, you know, I'm young <laughs> and the, the pubs are open, the restaurants are open, the weekend is here um, because this business, unusually for me, is very much a Monday to Friday business. Hmm. So I'm like, of all the times to choose, why would you choose that? And how can they communicate effectively that, you know, this is a really positive thing. And, you know, I think, I don't know, I shall let you know later because this is actually today. Mm -hmm. I, I think they're struggling. I think they're going to struggle to get the, the attendance that they wanted and they hoped for. And it's, as you say, it's because of that relationship and culture that's coming from the C-suite where um, you know, it's a financial business. It's you know, there's some serious compliance issues. There's serious fraud concern. You know, this stuff has to be got right. It has to be done properly because customer mm -hmm. customer uh, trust is is paramount. So there can be quite quite a strict culture. And then watching the business try and sort of pivot from that to say, but you know, we're all friends. Let's all get together and have a drink on a Friday night. It's not working. Mm. I, you know, it's a real struggle for them to get there. And I say, I think that's going to be the challenge of our time because I remember when I was in a similar position in the C-suite of a business that was doing well and wanted to do these things, I could sell it, but I could, I, you know, I could be that guy from the office and you know, I could come to your cubicle. We didn't have cubicles, but anyway, I could come to your desk and say, come on, Justin, let you will be great. Come on, let's, let's sit down and have a drink together. It's been ages since we have a drink. Come on. You know, I'm by, I can, I can make it work. Mm -hmm. You can't do that over zoom. You can't do that over Microsoft teams. It's harder. Mm -hmm. I mean, quite apart from the fact somebody might be recording it. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a huge challenge because what the business is trying to do is be positive. Actually, I think what it's doing is, uh, it, it, people feel it's a bit of an imposition. Mm -hmm. Why do I want to hear, spend my Friday hearing you tell me how good I am? You know, send me a memo. It's fine. <laughs> I'll read it on Monday. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that, that's possibly, that's my cynicism rather than my colleague's cynicism. But, uh, you know, I think it's a really difficult balance. And I look at this and think, okay, how would I have tried to achieve this? And I think I probably would have got some champions within the organization to whom I would have sold this idea or participated with them and said, okay, come on, how can we make this something that everybody wants to come to rather than here's a memo, everybody will come. So to me, they've used the wrong style. They've, they've come and essentially said, tell maybe with a bit of sell, but I think they would have been better doing sell with a lot of participate. Most definitely made this an employee led event rather than an employer-led event. Because ultimately, you know, it's great news. You know, there's lots of money has been made. 
I'm guessing that, you know, higher up in the org chart, there are going to be people getting very nice bonuses. And, you know, it's, it's a really good news story. But I don't know. Everybody, your Friday night is now mine. Ooh, that's, that's tough to pull off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always uh, out in North America, we tend to have the ritual Christmas party. Mm, yeah, we have that too. <laughs> Which is always the, the same sort of problem. Uh, do you go? Do you want to go? What day is it on? Who's going to be inconvenienced? How do you deal with all the problems that, that come from having a corporate sanctioned event yep. that, you know, attendance is not mandatory, but why didn't you go? You know, it, it's sure it is so difficult to get those those types of things right, mm-hmm. and and certainly I agree though that looking at that in terms of telling versus participating, especially this year, and you know I, I would say going forward as well because no matter what happens, I think after the last eighteen months, the world has changed in a way that it's not going to go back. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to look at their their Friday nights a little differently, you know, especially remote employees. Um, you know, that is a, that is a big challenge. One of the, one of the thoughts that this, this brings up that I did kind of jot down and it's not in your chart, but I wonder how an overlay would look is trust levels. What is the trust level in the organization within the organization between the, the different stakeholders, the employees, uh, the management. I wonder how that affects that relationship slash task oriented. It, it almost needs to be a three-dimensional type of um, graph because I, I think trust is also a part of that 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 is missing. Because, you know, selling, participating, delegating, if you're in a high-trust organization, and your your staff have excellent trust with each other a lot of these things can be easier to do i i think what you would do on your on your graph here moving from telling to selling to participating delegating i think what you do is you sort of move up that that curve a little bit your telling becomes selling if you're in a high trust environment when you're selling something, you know, it really is participating because people feel empowered to speak up and tell you what's good and what's not good. You know, that that way of bringing trust in there, I think, really does sort of expand that pie. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Stu? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the the key to making this work, because I believe that as a manager, you're trying to move people along that i mean it's not a lot of long but if you draw as there is in the, in the graphic it's usually draw a little line through the two by two then you're hoping that more and more decisions will be moving towards the delegate end and the the thing that whenever i'm training managers about delegation because i think the the, the book standard delegation um in north american and european companies is that everybody is awful delegating because there's a fundamental misunderstanding what delegating means so if i delegate a task to you as my employee what that means is 
that if it goes well, well done you. If it goes wrong, my bad. And that's the place that people have to start with, with delegation. Delegation is an exercise in trust. I'm trusting you to do the right things, and I'm reserving the right to look over your shoulder and check, and you're trusting me to cover your backside if something goes wrong. <laughs> you're, you're saying, yep, yeah, I will do this new thing. I will you know, stretch myself. I'm sure I'm delighted you've asked me to do it, but this isn't going to blow up in my face, is it, boss? That, that's really the unsaid transaction that's going on. And you need to trust me to do that. And I need to trust you to think, okay, Justin will come back to me and say, Stuart, I, I think I've done it, but I've got no idea how this particular thing works. And that's all about trust. You need to have the trust to come to me and say, I'm not quite sure, without me turning around and barking at you. And I need to have the trust that you're going to do that. Because ultimately, if, you know, if the org is run properly, then it should be my backside on fire if something goes wrong. And that whole trust side of things is where managers need to invest time because time brings trust. Time to talk to people. Time to demonstrate to them that you can be trusted. Because it doesn't really matter if I trust you. You have to trust me too. Mm -hmm. And the way that you will trust me as if you understand more of who I am, how I think. Trust is massively important in anything I think you're trying to do as a manager, but particularly if you are looking to delegate tasks, give more and more responsibility and develop people, then you must have trust. I, I think trust is so underrated. You know, it's we're we're all very conscious on tasks. But that, that trust, knowing that somebody's got your back, open communication in a lot of cases, that's really, really hard to do. And I think, you know, certainly with me going to a full-time remote worker over the last little while, I certainly see the difficulties in that for remote employees because, you know, those, those conversations that just naturally occur the the water cooler conversations mm. I, I i'm not sure in in europe in england particularly what do they have a tea kettle conversation to <laughs> yeah i'd say i'd say we, we we tend to call it the water cooler but um yeah it's very much a kettle mostly <laughs> <laughs> um you know the the idea that you can have those those levels of conversation that just come up naturally that don't don't really come in a zoom call or a teams meeting you know they they just occur and those can build that level of trust you know certainly i'm looking at what do they call it the the big quit this year yep. that so many people are moving along how do you onboard somebody remotely partially remotely it's it's going to be a challenge that organizations <laughs> sure. need to to look at you know we're talking about culture within an organization. We're talking about trust. We're talking about relationships. And if you're a bobbing face on the end of a Zoom call, or even worse, a gray screen with your name on it because you've turned off your camera, um, it's it's really really hard to build up those relationships. Uh, I see that myself. You know, some of the the new employees that we have, I've never met before. You know, I might have uh, Slack messaged them, or and that's about it. They. They have no idea who I am other than this cute little avatar that's, that's on my Slack profile. Sure. So it's, it's, it's a very, very odd 
thought process that I think is so much more important now. We need to really think about our relationships and build positive relationships in an organization. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the compliance man in me is, is jumping up and down and going, and also document. Mm. Because, you know, as someone who was onboarded, just as, as the lights went out in the world, I'm, I can, I mean, how did the company do? Well, I did the best it could. You know, people tried. But I remain an enigma to most of the people in the organization <laughs> um, who are sort of vaguely aware of my existence and might see me pop up on a call. Um, and then most alarmingly, they might see the chairman of the group call me out on a, on a town hall and ask how I'm doing. <laughs> he's clearly he's connected. Um, so, you know, the whole, the whole sort of situation of how the business works, it's not written down anywhere. I can't find it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that sort of stuff that you would normally pick up around the water cooler or the kettle. And that you would get from, you know, sitting in your, your office next to other people doing their job and, you know, and things, well, how do we talk to customers? How do we talk to banks? How do we talk to these people? All of that stuff, you just disappears. Mm-hmm. And it's a, as I say, it's going to be a huge challenge. Now you wrote something in the show notes, um, radio W I I F M. What's that? Yeah. So one of the things that I was thinking about, I I kind of just threw some notes in of relationship topics. And one of the things that I think actually ties back into our graph here of telling, selling, participating, and delegating is if you are framing a request to a coworker, to a manager, to a, a subordinate, play the radio station W I I F M. What's in it for me in your head? Because anything that you're doing, whether you're telling, whether you're selling, whether you're participating, whether you're delegating the other side of that relationship, here's it. Here's your request across that radio station. What's in it for me? It's great for us as perhaps managers to say, this is what we want. Just get it done. But really what we need to do is look at that approach and say, our employees, our our people that we're talking to, our our business is approaching this question with the what's in it for me. Well, why am I doing this? What's in it for me? Mm -hmm. Let's go back to your Friday night event. You're coming to London to have canapes. What your employees hear is great. What's in it for me? You know, you're taking away my time for snacks to celebrate the business doing well. What's in it for me? (laughs) Snacks and beer. So, you know, but that, that is a, you know, when it comes down to how do you frame that? If somebody had asked that question, perhaps what's in it for me when you're sending out that press release here, we're selling you on you're coming here to celebrate with us. Sure. You're not looking at that, that question of how that is heard by your, by your coworkers as great. You're telling me this, but what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's, uh, you know, it's a little thing. I've heard that for years and it stuck with me. You know, we, the way that we do the radio stations out here, we don't number them like uh, the English deal. We, we act every radio station 
has its call sign. And that's where this uh, joke comes from. It's probably very North American. So I do apologize to anybody that doesn't get it. But <laughs> it is it is a very, very good way to reframe questions. If you have the time, take the time to look at your request, to look at your task delegation and and really question how the other person is going to see that. What what lens are they going to look at that request from? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a really good idea because um, you're quite right. It's very easy. I mean, when, when I was leading a business, it's very easy to be excited. The business has done well. Of course, everybody wants to celebrate that. But, you know, not everybody's a stockholder. Not everybody is getting a direct financial sort of boost from, from that performance. And not everybody is as invested in, you know, there, there is nobody more invested in a business than the person that founded it. Um, but for everyone else, you know, for most people, a job is a job. They do it to earn money, to live life. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to forget that when you're in sort of founder mode. And uh, I, I put in a, a link here, which um, I'm sure Justin hasn't had time to have a look at yet. Um, it's a it's a Reddit post. It's a pep talk generator. <laughs> <laughs> it's fabulous. Um, I mean, I honestly, if, you know, if you're going to praise people in your business, then I'd much rather you came from from an authentic place. However, this will make you giggle if you have a look at the pep talk generator. You just take a phrase from each each column, and it generates a. a I think there's 140,000 <laughs> little pep talk sentences that can be generated from this. Very very clever, um, and. <laughs> I, I got it from Sean Blanc, who sent it out in his email uh, from Blanc Media, which is uh, fabulous. Really, really good. I, I like this. This is really good, actually. I I know an old uh, boss that I used to have, and I, he was actually one of the smartest guys that I ever knew. What he did was uh, he took over a new department, and on the back of his door, he had a layout of the office and the staff and all of the names of who was sitting at every desk. And what he would do is every time he walked out of his office, he would make a point of walking a different way and saying hi to some of the staff. Yep. But I could see right below that, here's how I'm going to make a good impact with everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, right below that is going to be the pep talk because, okay, today we'll, we'll make this matrix of, uh, you know, somebody in cubicle 3A is going to get all right, they're going to get one B, two Q, you know, and, and just put this pep talk right through. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, it'd be it'd be right up his alley. It's perfect, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, it's it's actually really good. I like it. That's cool, isn't it? Uh, we need to get this as a little app, you know. Uh, there, there we go, Stu. Here, here's our um, Apple app generator idea. We just have it so it pops up. So you can just look down at your phone as a little alert as you're talking to, you know, perhaps you have it GPS uh, located so that you walk up to somebody else. It tells you who they are and what the pep talk for them at the day is. Oh, I'm sure that that, uh, that new company Meta is already working on it. Uh, yeah, right. Pep talk. That's positive. I don't think Meta's doing anything positive. <laughs> okay. We won't, we won't hit on them too badly. Not today. Not today, anyway. We'll, we'll save that for another day. Uh, very cool, Stu. Thanks for sharing that. Any takeaways from you on this one? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, look, for me, there's no perfect way to interact with people, uh, people that you work with, people that you or you work for or, or who work for you. People are individuals and situations unique. Uh, we each learn how to best achieve our goals within a team or a group or a company. And harnessing those relationships is what separates the brilliant from the good. The brilliant are the ones who understand the people they're working with. Wow, very profound. I like that. Hmm. What about you, Justin? What do you take away for everyone? So mine is a thought that organizations are bigger than the people that make up the organizations. Uh, we've all been with the one person that thinks they are indispensable to an organization mm. and short of the founders. And even those are questionable some days for sure. An organization will live on without the people. But I sometimes think that organizations forget that the people in the organization form the organization itself. Mm -hmm. Toxic organizations, they start with people problems, uh, particularly at the top, you know, the, the C-suite conversations and tone sets a huge amount for the rest of the organization. So take a close look at the relationships in your workplaces. And when you're looking at them, start from the bottom up, because as you said, the people on the coal face, they really know what's happening. The people at the top may be a little bit out of touch. If we look at improving the relationships from the bottom of the organization right up to the top, I think that's the best way to create that organization of trust that we talked about. Start from the bottom up and really look at the way to build strong relationships because people are the backbone of the companies. Absolutely. Cool. Where can people find us on the internet, Stu? Uh, well, you can find me uh, at my website, stuartlennon.com or nerosnotes.co.uk. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter uh, at Stu Lennon. What about you, Justin? Where can people find you? You can find me at justintwyford.com. I'm just actually writing up something that may be of interest. We talk about a lot of our technology and how we set ourselves up for productivity. And I'm just in the process, uh, by the time this posts live, my blog post will be up talking about all of the technology and why I use it on my post. So it might be interesting if you've heard us talk about this and you actually want to see what my desk looks like, it'll be up there. You can also find my writings on stationery at Write Experience. And we are at stationeryadjacent.com. You can find links to our show notes there. This is episode. 32. So our show notes will be at stationaryadjacent.com slash episodes slash 032. Be real simple. Our next topic is actually going to be a good one. And it, it kind of ties into this one, which I didn't know it was going to at the time I picked it. It's going to be on the process. And we just talked a little bit about onboarding from remote workers and how you need to have a process on there. I want to talk a little bit about what processes we have in place and what, what works for us and what doesn't. Until then, goodbye and stay productive. Yes, sir.